0: In this
1: episode of the Too Fit Podcast. In these states, two things happen. One, the self disappears. That happens because your prefrontal cortex generates most of your higher cognitive functions, sense of morality, sense of will, complex decision making, long term planning, deactivates, shuts down.
0: Are you ready to push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between? Welcome to the Too Fit podcast, where the Too Fit guys uncover the tips, tools, and tactics from elite performers in the fields of health, nutrition, athletics, and business that will set you up for success, deliver results, and help you on your journey to becoming Too Fit. Now, let's
1: get started with your hosts, Jake and Josh, the Too Fit guys.
2: Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Too Fit Podcast. We're back! We're back. Better than ever, I hope. But today's guest was better than ever. This was on another level.
0: Yeah, a little about him, I'm sure most of you've heard of him. If not, you're probably familiar with his work. He's already a New York Times bestseller, and he's about to do it again with his latest book, Stealing Fire.
2: When you're in a high-performance state, which you will learn about in this podcast, time simply just doesn't exist. It's because you're in the here and the now. You know, I think an
0: underlying theme of what flow is and what he talks about, it kept reminding me of the quote, it was even in uh, Dr. Alvin Brown's book, he talks about it, about being in the present. That's the only time that you're actually ever happy. If Mm -hmm. you're living in the past and thinking about the past, you subconsciously feel regret, you know, for your past sins, whatever it might be. If you're looking to the future, you constantly have anxiety. So the only time that you're truly happy is in the moment, in the present, in the deep now,
2: As Stephen calls it. Absolutely. It's great stuff. That is deep. It is deep. Wherever you are, be all there. That's right. Right? (laughs) Stephen's new book, Stealing Fire, which if you're familiar with his work, this is just one of many great books. The other books he's come out with, Bold, Rise of Superman, this book, Stealing Fire, is kind of on the heels of The Rise of Superman. And it's an amazing read. He sent us a copy. We burned through it in a couple days to get ready for the podcast. And it is just loaded with information about flow states, the history, tons of research and hard data that um, really complements the book. Oh yeah, I think uh,
0: I got a ton out of it, just the book itself, even more out of this interview. So if you combine those two, you guys are going to be on fire. You're going to feel like you've actually stole fire. Very Promethean.
2: Yeah, very Promethean. And we covered a lot of great techniques that are very applicable down to the nuts and bolts of what you can do at home anywhere you are you can induce a flow state and steven covers all of those details here all with just yourself you don't need pills you don't need technology tech stuff we do no. cover some of that if you want to dive into those options but we really cover how to get into flow states the benefits the performance aspects really everything you need to know
0: yeah so get your notebook ready
2: All right, Stephen. Welcome. Welcome on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you guys.
0: Yeah, Stephen, we're excited about this. I I got to be honest. When I saw, it's been on my watch list. Stealing Fire, and uh, I I actually went to Barnes and Noble the other night, and I wasn't sure if it was out, but I went to the search desk actually, and uh, I typed it in. It said it was in the system. Then I go and look on the business profile section. Actually, was not there, but I go and ask the lady. She goes to the back. She's searching all around. She finally gets it. And I'm just like, yes. And I uh, ended up spending all that night uh, thumbing through it and reading through it. I think it's a great read. I think people are going to get a whole lot out of it. But I want to know, what's the inspiration behind it? Why does this book exist?
1: You know, it uh, Coming Out of Rise is Superman, which is my book about flow states or optimal states of performance, um, which was primarily focused on actually adventure sport athletes, we had been doing you know that the Flow Genome Project, the organization where we study these states, we had been working with a lot of like top elite performing organizations, the military, top athletes, that sort of thing. But coming out of Rise, we found ourselves kind of all over the country. Wall Street, tech you know, Fortune 500 one hundred companies, tech firms, more military. Um and it really didn't wherever we went, first of all, to me, the fact that I'm getting to teach flow, which is an altered state of consciousness inside institutions and the establishment, it's a little peculiar, it's new, right? It strikes me as kind of a radical and really positive development. But everywhere we went, didn't matter, Uh, people would come up to us after the talks and say things like, oh, this flow stuff is great, I've been doing a little bit, I'm gonna do a lot more, but what do you think about, you know, we've taken everybody on silent meditation retreats or we've got teams of engineers microdosing with psychedelics, or people are using alternative sexuality practices to alter consciousness, or they're using technology to, you know, zap their brainwaves. You know, everywhere we went, like we were, like I was freaked out that we were talking about what altered state of consciousness and its impact on performance and everywhere we went, people were using a kind of blizzard of these states um, to unlock performance is part A. So we noticed that. The other thing that we noticed is, when I was mapping the research for flow and working with the Flow Genome Project with Jamie Wheel, my partner, we sort of had to do a giant diagram of everything that happens neurobiologically. So, neurochemistry, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neuroelectricity, psychology, big math. <laughs> and in doing it, it turned out to be something of a Rosetta Stone for all these states of consciousness. And what we've learned. Um, Not that this is new. A hundred years ago, William James, Harvard psychologist, philosopher said, Hey, wait a minute. It looks like, ah, meditative states, contemplative states, psychedelic states, flow states, sexuality, trigger states, whatever. They look a lot like the same thing. We took a hundred year detour around this idea, but what we've learned in the past 10 years is neurobiologically, these are very similar states. The knobs and levers being tweaked in the brain are pretty much the same. There are slight differences for sure, um, but they're pretty much the same state. So what we started to realize is there was a giant revolution going on in people utilizing non-ordinary states of consciousness to massively up-level performance. And because it was taking place in these disparate groups and because most people don't know about the neurobiology, they don't realize these are the same things, nobody was talking to each other, Right. Flow was artists and athletes for the past hundred years. Meditative states was mostly saints and seekers. Right, psychedelic states was hippies and ravers. None of these groups talked to each other. They didn't like each other. They didn't think about each other. And nobody definitely was talking to the Dave Asprey biohacking crowd. You know what I mean? Like none of these communicating with the Navy SEALs. And um, but they were all doing the same thing. And if you start working the numbers on it and looking at the amount of people involved, you're looking at a giant revolution that nobody's talking about. But if you know where to look, it's almost everywhere you look. So that's sort of the book came from, oh my God, we got to tell people about this and you know, figure out what it means. And then more than anything, we lit out on a giant adventure to meet as many people um, as we possibly could who were doing this. And it took us you know, deep into business. We were rich with Richard Branson on Necker Island. It took us to the Googleplex. It took us to the Navy SEALs and you know, it took us all over the place. Um, so that's what the book is.
0: So that is, doesn't sound like work at all to me.
1: <laughs> oh. I have nothing to say. <laughs> <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> it sounds awesome.
0: That sounds awesome. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a
1: lot. It was a lot of fun, and we met, you know, fantastic people doing mind blowing cutting edge research along the way. Um, some of this stuff is so much farther along than you can possibly believe. That was was the other thing, right? Like we uncovered four forces that are driving it forward and it like very, very, very quickly.
2: Did you find that through your research and, and being with all of these different groups, did you find, especially like in that endurance space or Wall Street, where they were performing these acts or these incredible feats of fitness or performance mentally and physically, did you find that they truly didn't understand or recognize that they were chasing a flow state. It was just a byproduct of continuing to push the, the boundaries. And therefore, obviously, they were inducing these states, but they didn't really make the connection of this is why I continue to do it. This is why the boundaries kind of naturally continue to get pushed.
1: It's a great question. And um, there's no one answer, right? Every, every individual we met, was very very different um, I will say you know Wall Street especially but a couple other places they they're really aware of what they're doing there's high performance has been on Wall Street for a little while now um, and they're they're really aware of, of, of what's going on in the tech community um, you know it depends on the technique meditations obviously been there for a while you know things along those lines everybody knows they're going to Burning Man. You know, there's, so there, there's overlap. They know what those feelings are. Um, maybe the last couple pieces haven't gone into place. And then, you know, there are obviously we've had the opportunity to, to be kind of in Europe, in Asia, all over the world. Um, I, I got to tell you something, by the way. I just spent a week in Dubai and I was with, you know, I was, I was speaking at the World Government Summit and I, and I was talking about flow as an altered state of consciousness, as a way to produce agile government in the 21st century. And what I discovered is I have flow groupies over in the <laughs> East. And they were very familiar with my work. Some of them, a lot of people come in through abundance or bold in the work on innovation. But they, you know, bold talk about flow and they kept going into rise. And, you know, I was really shocked by how conversant people were in the topic. So they may not, there may be a bit or two in the language still missing. But I think this is like somehow, and I don't, I really, I'm not sure how, this has become a mainstream conversation. You know, there's a chapter in the book called high times on main street. Um, I, you know, I think that's kind of, you know, where, where we are, whether or not we're talking about it. Some of the, I, I'm not a hundred percent certain people understand that like the huge burst in, in interest in sexuality, like the 50 shades of gray revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, people put the dots together and gone, oh, wow, this kind of sexuality produces very powerful, potent altered states of consciousness. Obviously, that's been, know, anything about tantra, you know, this, there's nothing new here, right? It, that's an age-old tradition. That stuff may be, that may be the, the missing link that, that people start to connect with stealing fire. But I think there's a general awareness that I'm doing something powerful to my consciousness, and it has a massive impact on things like creativity and performance and anxiety and things along those lines.
0: Yeah, a couple of the stats that just blew my mind was that financial study that y'all did that said this was a $4 trillion industry, you know, and then you hear those quotes from people like Tim Ferriss who says, every billionaire he knows in Silicon Valley is microdosing with some sort of, you know, psychedelic. Um, But I want to go back to some of that vocabulary you were talking about just to define some terms for our listeners that maybe they're not familiar with flow or uh, ecstasy. So maybe just describe for us, you know, what is ecstasy and then uh, what that consists of.
1: So uh, when we were trying to figure out what to call all this, right? Um, flow is one altered state of consciousness. We are talking about a spectrum of, you know, a chunk of the altered state spectrum, sort of the chunk that I talk about is north of happy, right? And we didn't know what to call it. We thought altered states was a very loaded word. We kind of like non-ordinary states of consciousness, which is uh, Johns Hopkins neuropsychologist Stan Grof's term. But again, it, you know, it's a little academic, and we were at the Navy SEALs and, and one of the commanders of SEAL Team 6 used the term "ecstasy," which, um, which he colloquially, they called it flipping the switch, but he used the term. And ecstasis is a very – it's a Greek term and it literally means to stand outside oneself and to be filled with information and inspiration. And all of the states we're talking about, contemplative states, meditative states, psychedelic states, flow states, awe – what they all share in common among a couple other things is they do make our sense of self disappear so we stand outside ourselves and we change the channel on normal waking consciousness and all of these states are information rich states we get access well basically what happens is all the brain's pattern information processing software gets massively jacked up right we take in more information per second we pay more attention to it salience goes up we pattern recognition goes up so we link it together with older ideas Lateral thinking goes up. That's far-flung ideas that we're linking together, creating those aha moments. So these are, in a sense, this is altered states, the argument we make in the end, especially ecstatic states, are essentially an information technology. So if you're talking about self-disappearing and information increasing, um, it fit the Greek definition perfectly. And once you can sort of get past the ecstasy club drug reference, right, which is what we thought was the least harmful of all the references <laughs> that we could get to um, – it made sense to use. It also meant sense to sort of try to like change a little bit of the vocabulary because we wanted people to be able to read it, right? To not get hung up on any preconceived notions and just like give us the benefit of the doubt for 250 pages and then you can make up your own mind. But we wanted a term that just didn't turn off at tons of groups of people. So ecstasis was our category for a larger category of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Flow is a subcategory. Right. Flow specifically refers to an optimal state of consciousness where we perform our best and we feel our best. But, you know, it's one of these many categories um, that come in.
2: Are there benefits to trying to pursue a state of flow for prolonged periods of time? Because, you know, it it obviously brings up these questions of like the Limitless pill or the movie with Bradley Cooper and things like that. I think people really associate these states of flow or higher points of consciousness with those type of scenarios, right? And it can bring those dogmas or stigmas or or preconceived ideas. Um, Is it something you want to access all the time?
1: So, A, I want to start with the woman who wrote Limitless is a friend of mine and I tell her every time I talk to her that she's in enormous pain in my ass. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to start there. The second thing um, to know is you cannot live in a constant state of flow. In fact, once a month, I would say somebody comes up to me and they say, oh my God, you've got to study me. I'm always in flow. And, and I always say the same thing, which is, it's interesting because you know there's another word for that. We often call that schizophrenia. <laughs> You, know, you don't get to live in a flow state. And the reason is flow is a cycle. It's a four-stage process, and you have to move through each stage where you can restart the cycle. Only one of those stages is the flow state itself. More importantly, these states, the flow, like all these states, it's expensive for the brain to produce. And so it requires energy, vitamins, minerals, sunlight, etc. You burn through that during the flow state, right? Flow is a big high. It tends to be followed by a low. That's because you've burned out all your feel-good neurochemistry and you've exhausted your brain. And there's a recovery period on the back end, as with most of these states. So a permanent state of flow does not seem possible at all, nor is it beneficial. And one of the reasons I say that is just simply let's talk about flow like all non-ordinary states. It's a huge impact on creativity depending on whose numbers you want to go by, it's somewhere to 200 to 700% boost in creativity. And that heightened creativity actually outlasts the flow state by a couple of days. Um, but that said, you get a shit ton of ideas in flow, right? You get flooded. Not all of them are great. You want that sober refractory period on the back end to look over your ideas and go, okay, what's a keeper? What do I throw out? I love to write in flow and edit in that low, because if I still like it in that low, I know it's great, right? That's how I use it. Now, that said, it is extremely easy, we have discovered, to create a high-flow lifestyle. Meaning, like, even if you go to uh, the work we did at Google last year, it was a six-week uh, joint learning project where we trained up a team of engineers. In six weeks, we got a 35 to 70% increase in flow. We just got data back from last year on our flow fundamentals course, which is six weeks online, actually a little more intensive than when we did Google because we had more, uh, we had more time. Uh, people were a little less busy and we can ask a little bit more of them. And uh, we had uh, wider access to different technology because when we were working with Google, we had to stay within their technology. Um, and we find on uh, average a 70% increase in flow just from a, you know, just from an online class, which, you know, if you would talk to me two years ago, I would have told you, you were nuts. There's no way, you know what I mean? Like our online course is going to give you a 70% boost in flow. You're crazy. But it turns out the thing that we've learned over these past three or four years is this stuff is really trainable, right? Um, not, you know, it still has, there's, there's dangers, there's downsides. This isn't just positive psychology where everything's happy, happy, right? There's, there's things to be concerned about, um, along this path but it does seem that it's possible for everyone
0: I like what you said about just touching on the creativity part in the book you say that it's not a skill but it's actually a, a state of mind now how did you arrive at that conclusion and when you say there is a 200% increase in creativity how, how are you guys measuring that
1: those are both great questions um, I'll start so the, the let's just start with what we know and how this works sure sure okay? So, um, in these states, two things happen, right? One, the self disappears. That happens because your prefrontal cortex, part of your brain that's right back here, um, which generates most of your higher cognitive functions, sense of morality, sense of will, complex decision-making, long-term planning, deactivates, it shuts down, gets quiet. It's an efficiency exchange, really. The brain is trading non-critical energy for focus and attention, but in the process, Prefrontal cortex turns off. Self is created all over the prefrontal cortex. So your self goes quiet. The self goes quiet. The inner critic that nagging always on defeatist voice, your head go shuts up, right? Goes silent. And that doesn't happen very often. When the inner critic goes silent, one of the things that happens is creativity goes through the roof and risk taking goes through the roof because you're no longer judging all of your ideas so harshly, right? You're just, Mm. are just coming out Simultaneously, You get five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce. Norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, anandamine, endorphin, sometimes oxytocin. These chemicals do a lot of things in the brain. They all impact information processing. Norepinephrine and dopamine enhance focus, so you take in more information per second. Enhance salience, you pay more attention to that information. And they lower signal-to-noise ratios, so you make easier connections between ideas. Anandamine Boost lateral thinking and so forth. So all of these things sort of surround the creative process, whatever there's lots of different types of creativity, obviously, but under the hood, it's always a recombinatory process. It's new ideas coming in, bumping into old thoughts to create something like startling new. That's how it works every, every place along the way. Um, and so these things are surrounded. So uh, to give you an example of how they measured it, and this is a really cool experiment, was done at the University of Sydney. Um, They took a group of 46 people and they gave them uh, the classic test of creative problem solving, which is the nine dot problem. Connect nine dots with three lines in 10 minutes or less. Under normal conditions, less than 5% of the, the population pulls it off. And in that control in their group, nobody did. They then took a different group. They used transcranial magnetic stimulation. They shot a weak magnetic pulse through people's prefrontal cortex they knocked it out and used a temporary 20 to 40 minute flow stick and they readministered the same test. 46% solved the test in record time. So that's, huge. Uh, that's a huge, the uh, also uh, if you look at James Fadiman's studies on microdosing in creatives, right. Uh, which have been going on since the sixties, you know, sort of more off than on because there was a big period that it was illegal, but, but you know, he, he started back then, um, some of the early research, and he's continued. And uh, you know, for fifty years now, mm-hmm. giving people subjective tests afterwards, how much of a boost in creativity do you see? Two hundred percent is the most common answer. So there's a lot of you know there's a lot of different ways. We have uh, we've used subjective creativity questionnaires post flow. I'm working right now with Scott Barry Kaufman at the University of Pennsylvania, a so psycholo- a positive psychologist, and we're trying to get a very accurate kind of creativity. Metric, we're not we're not sure, but we want to release it on, on online because we we can get big data sets really fast. That's one of the things we have found. So even if it's a little bit of a squishy question, like how much of a boost in creativity did you notice when your consciousness was altered? If you get a hundred thousand people to answer that question, you can sort of start to trust the answers. Sure,
0: now that's a great answer. It actually reminds me of uh, I brought this up to Josh earlier about this underground movement I'm sure you're familiar with in the in the hip-hop community and the rap community about this, this purple drink, this lean, where it's a mix of, you know, codeine and cough syrup and sometimes candy or whatever else. But people, these these rappers, they only write their music when they're on that. You know, they say they're their most creative when they're under the influence. And so that's, it. just kind of reminded me of that, just people trying to be, they're their most but, uh, creative in those states.
1: One thing I, I should mention since you brought up hip-hop is uh – uh some of the earliest research into flow was done on rappers. Really? Well, because, well, it's it's really, you know, they started with jazz musicians, and it took them forever to figure out how do you put a instrument into an fMRI because you can't have any metal in there, right? So they had to build a keyboard with no metal parts at Johns Hopkins. A Char- guy named Charles Lim did this, John Hopkins. And that was his first, his second, so he was like, fuck that. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> rappers. They don't need anything, right? <laughs> they were looking at their brains when they were, you know, rapping lyrics they knew, you know, beer, Black Planet from the script, or freestyling. Freestyling, obviously producing way more flow versus, you know, and so they did imaging studies on rappers. It was, it was, I think, the second big group to get imaged.
0: Wow. This is by no way an endorsement to start drinking purple drinks.
1: <laughs> no, but, you know, it is whatever works. I mean, I, you know, I think that's part of the point Of the book, though, sure, not the purple drink, but the the point of the book is, you know, everybody does these things for performance. And because of what's gone on in the science right now, we have found ways to do this much more safely, with much more precision, getting the exact results we want when we want them with less of the downside and I'm not saying there's a downside to purple drink. I, I've never tried the purple drink and, and, and B I'm not much to judge on these things. Um, Cause I certainly tried plenty of other things. <laughs> um, no, but uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm glad that the information is out there at this point because we can start to make informed choices uh, and, you know, we could take, at least we could take better risks, right? right. You know. Stephen.
2: I wanted to ask about uh, removing the self. This is talked a lot about in your books and, and especially Stealing Fire and a lot of in relation to mindfulness and meditation practice. But for people out there, what is the main purpose that we would want to remove the self in that moment other than just this performance productivity enhancement? And what builds our self-identity in the first place?
1: Um, those are both great questions. Um we'll start with your second one what we'll builds your self identity and more important and, and you know the and the answer to that is we are not 100% certain at all what builds our self identity but here's what we know and, and you know it started most of this came out of disease work early right somebody would have a stroke or brain damage to a certain part of the brain or they'd take a you know bullet through a part of their brain and we would figure out we would see what happened afterwards that's where it started right Then we came in with imaging and we started to be able to, you know, turn off parts of the brain, you know, go go at it that way. So self seems to be localized primarily in the prefrontal cortex. And there are seven to ten different structures, maybe more, that have been associated with it. But the the way to think about this, the way to think about the brain um, and what we know today is almost everything is a network in the brain, Right. And that's how it works. And like all networks, they're fragile. So when you've got something like self and there's seven structures generating it, all you got to do is shut down a couple of nodes in that network and we lose that ability to create our sense of self. Not a big surprise. We do it every night as we fall asleep, right? We, we, the self goes away as we go to sleep. The thing that's also interesting is it's not just the self. You also, time is also calculated all over your prefrontal cortex, yeah. Right. So when as it shuts out, we lose the ability to separate past from present from future, plunged into what psychologists call the deep now, a totally engaged present. This combination is really important. As I said earlier, when our sense of self goes away, the inner critic shuts up, right? So a lot of fear and anxiety goes away simultaneously with time. Most of our fears are, unless you're in immediate danger, are things in the past that happened, you want to avoid them happening again or things in the future that you're scared of, right? So when you, those things go away, anxiety massively dropped, drops. So like, you know, nothing else yet said, if you look at the psychological statistics for America, we are tired, wired, and stressed. One out of four of us are on anti-anxiety or anti medicines, that's enormous. Suicide rates for people ages 10 to 78, are at 30 year highs and climbing still, you gotta stop and think about what it takes a 10 year old to kill themselves, right? So what we know across the boards with these non-ordinary states is that they have a massive impact on fear and anxiety. They lower it significantly. And on t- and by the way, as you move into these states, not only do stress hormones, cortisol and norepinephrine, which are almost constant in 21st century, they get flushed out of your system and they get replaced by feel-good performance-enhancing neurochemicals. Your nervous system gets to, it literally resets back to zero, which is a really big deal. Um, This is why, um, you know, in the book, one of the things we do is we talk about, uh, we compare three side-by-side PTSD studies that have gone on in the past five years, which is an extreme example of, right, how this can help mental... These are people who are at the Kind of the extreme edge of fear and anxiety, but you know, we have studies going back to 2012 show that in soldiers with PTSD or victims of child abuse or sexual trauma, one to three treatments with MDMA, street version of, of you know the, the pharmaceutical version of ecstasy, is enough to completely cure and remove symptoms of PTSD. That's big news. They redid that study with surfing and soldiers with PTSD. Right? They replaced. uh, They replaced the psychedelic with surfing, which produces a lot of flow. It's a sport pack with flow triggers. They also use talk therapy like they use with the MDMA. They got the exact same results, this time with five weeks of surfing. They then did the study again, this time replacing surfing with meditation. They got the same results after four weeks of meditation. So you've got comparative techniques of ecstasy, all with a huge impact on our nervous system and probably the people on the planet with the worst you know, nervous system. In mind, you a lot of them, 25 million Americans at any one time suffer PTSD. That's a lot. It's almost one out of ten of us. So it's a big swatch for the population who this you know stuff provides immediate relief to. And the FDA is now looking at all these techniques as treatments for depression and anxiety in all of us. Um, really uh, exciting, exciting research, and I think really pretty needed.
0: Yeah, that's a big step forward. But I, I want to get into some of the, the nuts and bolts here. Uh, let's just take, for example, just just flow to kind of you know keep it simple. We'll just keep it just to flow. What are some of the, the techniques you know that are that are used that are the most efficient at inducing flow? And I am sure it's different for for different people. You know, we all get into it in, in different ways. I know you guys have said before that it's ubiquitous, right? But so, one, how would I find out you know how I personally get into flow, and then how that differs from say Josh, and then what techniques you know for each type of person. Um, you know, would we employ from there? Good
1: question, Jake. So, um, and I don't know about Josh. I don't I don't, he may be a lost cause,
0: but <laughs> yeah, a I lot of times
1: help everybody else. Um so uh you are right, flow is ubiquitous. All these states are ubiquitous, right? We're all hardwired for them. Um what we've learned about flow is uh simply put, uh there are 20 flow triggers that we know of. There are 10 flow triggers that'll drive an individual into flow. There's also something called group flow. It's when a whole team gets into a flow state together. Um, you know, we've seen this, we've taken part in a great brainstorming session where the ideas are bounced around that's group flow in action. If you've ever seen one of a band comes together in music, you know, sales, or if you saw the Super Bowl and watch what the Patriots did in the fourth quarter, that's group flow in action. Like right? so there are 10 group flow triggers. Um, And I can talk a little bit about how individual ones work for you. But the first thing to know is the easiest, which is flow like all these states requires intense focus in the present moment, in the right here, right now. So that's really what these triggers do. They drive attention into the present moment. If you wanted to put it a little more formally, you'd say, hey, these 20 things are the things that evolution shaped our brain to pay the most attention to. Now, caveat, there's way more than 20. We found 20 right? Nobody's really taking a deep look at sex. We know sex produces flow. Nobody, is it lust? Is it sex? Is it skin type? Is it like what we know frame, rate? How fast things move past your eyes. That's probably another flow trigger again, for evolutionary reasons, because not often do things move fast. <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, so we know those two things are areas of ongoing research, just a ton more. Um, and as you pointed out, the, the reason is individual, is it's genetic, right? There's there's genetic components here, and we're all slightly wired differently. You know, how active or inactive your dopamine receptors are. For example, we'll set your risk, risk profile. That will determine a lot of this stuff. Um, to get to your second question, where can somebody start? Easiest place, free, simple. Go to the Flow Genome Project website. If you go to, you know, flowgenomeproject.com, there's a free pro-flow pro, pro pile can't talk sorry guys (laughs) it's a it's a treatology says if you're this kind of person you're likely to find the most flow in these directions it's become over the past couple of years the largest study ever run in optimal psych so it's a huge data set um, and uh, seems very very effective we're even seeing it being imported we're working with a school in Minneapolis that is putting they're giving their fifth graders this test um, and starting there and and, and assigning them flow profile based projects so they can train in whatever area um, is most likely to please flow for them. So we've seen it work kind of for all ages across the board. That's a really great place to start. It's the easiest place to start. You know, as you get more familiar with the triggers, there's, you know, lots of ways to to work with it that way. Um, And again, you know, not only will those triggers differ for individuals, they'll also differ for you week to week, how much energy you got, how, how, you know, what you feel like some days you want to take a risk. You're totally down. Some days you'd rather be creative. Both are options, right? Both will work just as well. So it's individual. And I think it's moment by moment. Um, And I, you know, the most important thing is there's no one way, right? There's no one path to greatness. So you got. What's most important is figure. You know, figure out what's authentic, what's real for you, what works for you, and run the experiment.
2: Now, Stephen, when you say triggers, are you referring to these triggers ranging from technology to physical? I mean, what what do these actual triggers kind of look like?
1: So, uh, just a couple quick examples. We spent a lot of time studying action, adventure sport athletes, um, both in Steel and Fire. There's some, and in Rise of Superman, and. One of the reasons is because action and venture sport athletes are very, very good at getting into flow. They really need flow to perform, not go to the hospital, not go home in a body bag, that sort of thing. So we spent a lot of time um, over a decade working with action and venture sport athletes trying to figure out what this was. And so what we found with them is they rely on three triggers. These are external triggers, environmental triggers. Um, the first, and we already mentioned, is high consequences. You know, flow follows focus, consequences catch our attention. The important thing to note is, well, the actually adventure sport athletes rely on physical consequences, right? It doesn't matter. Social risk, emotional risk, intellectual risk, creative risk, all this stuff works just as well, depending on your pleasure. Right? You see a lot of sort of creative risk-taking in coding. Coders get into flow all the time. It's very common, right? And it's creative risk-taking. You don't want to screw up a line of code. Right. You got to You got to take you got you to take the chance, but you don't want to screw up the line of code. Um, sorry about that. Um, so you, you see a lot of creative risk taking that way. Um, the second thing that they rely on is uh, a rich environment, which is a fancy way of saying that's uh, novelty. Lots of complexity, lots of unpredictability. All three of these things grab hold of our attention, drive focus into the now, right? They spike dopamine, the focusing drug. But again, you can see the same thing in any environment. You know, we we do a lot of work with varying organizations, and you know, they can build you can build novelty, complexity, and unpredictability into your office design. Tony Shea with the downtown Vegas project, right from Zappos in downtown Vegas, he wants to increase the amount of creativity flow and you know innovation in downtown Vegas. So he's designed the entire city to amplify novelty, complexity, and unpredictability. So you can you know you can have these triggers anywhere. The last one is uh, what's known as a deep embodiment, which is a fancy with saying You're moving your body, you're paying attention to multiple sensory streams at once. The action sport athletes. This was super important because as they were moving their body, they were encountering zero Gs, multiple Gs, or polyaxial rotation, spinning. As gravity-bound creatures, we're not used to weightlessness or weightedness or spinning, and those things, those feelings or sensations grab hold of our attention. But, you know, you can do this any which way. Montessori education is actually really high in flow. When they went looking for really high flow environments outside of action sports, one of the things they found is Montessori education it's often called embodied education. Why? They emphasize learning through doing. So don't just read about the windmill. Go out and build one. And, you know, as a result, you're using your eyes, your ears, your hands, all that, engage multiple senses, catch hold of your attention, massively increases flow. And as a result, one of the other things that happens in flow is learning is very enhanced. Huge spike in learning, um, so that, which is one of the reasons why Montessori kids always outperform everybody else on every test you could possibly imagine giving them.
0: Now, is there certain techniques that will induce virtually anybody into flow? Like in your, in your Google study, y'all were using the uh, low magnetic pulse to induce that hypofrontality. And whenever I, whenever I first read that, I was like, man, I need one of these machines like for myself you know, that I can use. Or other implications, I was thinking, man, if I'm a, an MLB pitcher, I'm going to have this on in the bullpen before I go take the mound. Is, is there...
1: Well, I will tell you, uh, radar operators are using it the early we- research on transcranial was done on radar operators. So that is becoming very, very, very common, um, inside the military and out to see radar operators, uh, using, using transcranial and wall street seems to particularly like that technique really? as well. Um, Tim Barris once pointed out to me that, um, you have to get it right. If you're trying this yourself, you have to get it right. or You can make yourself really stupid for a little bit <laughs> while. You get it wrong. Um, Personally, like I, I maybe I'm a little more low tech. Maybe I don't care like carrying around a lot of gear. Um, I mean, I certainly you know action sports are my favorite way into these states, and you know that comes with some gear. But like, it is very easy to breathe yourself into these states. You could do it really, really, really fast. So, so you you know starting with a little kind of mindfulness practice, some breath work, I would do something interesting and aggressive, like, you know, box breathing or a breath of fire or combine the two that really, you know, produces a, a powerful state shift. But, you know, I, I think you can get this similar, get to similar places with seven to 10 minutes of box breathing. I, you know, even when I ski now, I, I do box breathing on the chairlift. Um, oh, really? Between runs. Yeah. A lot. Or before meetings or, you know, if I have to go give a speech, I'm always in the bathroom sitting in the can, you know, <laughs> doing, doing like a couple minutes of box breathing before I go on stage. Yeah.
0: Are, you do, are you using the uh, – utilizing the power pose as well?
1: Sometimes I'll use the power pose as well, which um, I probably should integrate more. But I, I do it when I'm, you know, in the elevator. I tend to stand like Wonder woman in the elevator yeah. and the bathroom
2: absolutely yeah jake and i were actually talking about that last night um that was a question i would wanted to bring up was uh, about the breathing techniques um because fire breathing you can definitely get that sense of for lack of a better term high if you will um intense focus kind of euphoria um
1: yeah it seems to work really well so i wanted to r- run that by you yeah i mean certainly wim off with his you know hyperventilation version of breath of fire is getting some amazing results. Stan Groff, when he you know, developed holotropic breath work, because um, when LSD got banned and he was doing all kinds of psychedelic research, he developed holotropic breath work because it produces almost the exact same, you know, you basically could have the same kind of acid, very powerful serotonin release in the brain using breath work. It does take about three hours of breathing to get there. You can get sort of like a nitrous oxide, like a whippet response in about 25 minutes um, using those breath te- techniques. And you know, I you know I I learned breath of fire in you know years of ashtanga yoga, so that's what I use because um, it's just easy for me. But I really box breathing is what I lean on the most. Um, it's what we teach at FGP. It's the first thing we teach. It has um, some really neat additional features besides the calm. Um, some things that I think help. Flow long term. So,
2: and this is the are you tracing a box? Uh, um, right. four seconds,
1: four seconds hold, second. four exactly. seconds, yeah, yeah force you know, five seconds in, five seconds hold, five seconds out, five seconds hold, and up to like 10 seconds, uh, if you can. And w- it, you know, it does a, a number of things, or right? the, the Navy SEALs use it a lot, both because it, you know, it expands lung capacity for sure over time. Um, and you see with both breath of fire and box breathing, especially if you're combining them, uh, Brian McKenzie um, discovered that uh, you can get, you know, enhanced cardio fitness just through these breathing techniques. So you don't have to run as much. You can just, you know, kind of breathe. Um, But the other thing is when you exhale all the air from your lungs and hold your breath for more than seven seconds, it automatically induces a fight or flight response. You panic. And so what you learn to do is focus through the panic quiet that down for if your interest is in flow, that's great for flow, right? Because that's oftentimes especially for action board athletes or people Wall Street traders who are in a high stress situations so and have to make very quick decisions right? Um, that you have to focus through the panic um, and so it's very useful to do that it's also, you know, for anybody else, if you can learn to kind of down regulate your nervous system in this way you get small gaps you get powerful emotions come up there's a tiny little gap right before you actually you notice it you're like oh crap that's a lot of rage (laughs) you have a second second to make a decision do i want to feel this or maybe not so much today maybe this isn't a good idea and you know under normal circumstances rage comes with that a choice it's an alternate state of consciousness in and of itself right it takes over so you want that little gap that says hey man this is a choice you can decide whatever you want to do here so I, you know, I find box breathing is really good for all three of those things.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true to saying that I can get into this state just by breathing in five to seven minutes, but what's the secret, uh, to maintaining that state of flow that almost seems harder than just getting there itself.
1: Well, again, I mean, so flow, there's no one measure. How long does it last kind of thing? Right. Differs for varying people may differ for different kind of flow states. For example, Average flow state usually comes in an hour to an hour and a half, maybe two hours. But Helper's High, which is an altruism induced flow state discovered by Alan Lukes, who runs Big Brothers Big Sisters back in the 90s, can sometimes last two days. So go figure. I had, and then there's, you know, I've had experiences, especially writing one of my early books, Small small Further Prayer. I wrote, you know, mostly nonstop two week flow state. I would pop out of it at the end of the day, eat my dinner, pass out, fall asleep talk to my wife, you know, and come back, start working the next morning and start writing and drop right back in and sustain. Or you see that with startups, right? Startup teams get, they fall into group flow a lot and they'll manage to sustain it for like the three months up to launch. So the, those things seem to be common as well. Um, but, you know, to, to, maintain it over long periods of time, you know, you, you need a, you need to be recovering deeply you know, and I, more. I mean, more than anything, which is a, a lot of what most people leave out of the equation. Really critically important. There is a recovery phase on the back end of a flow state. So, just to just what I, I what I do at the end of every day, we have a sauna in our house. So I spend an hour in the sauna. I do a lot of all the box breathing, meditation stuff that we've been talking about. That gets done in the sauna. So, and you know, and the, and I and we really prioritize sleep at the flow genome project. One of the first things we do when we go into organizations, put everybody on a sleep monitor. So you, you know, seven hours, these are expensive states to produce. You get a lot more work done, right? McKinsey did a 10 year study on flow and they found top executives were five times more productive or 500% more productive in flow. So, so much, you can get so much done, right? In these, in these small windows in these states that you get, you end up with more time, but you have to prioritize recovery. One of the things we, we say all the time, FGP, is with this stuff, you got to go slow to go fast, um, which is really important. You get, you go A to B far quicker using these techniques, but you really do have to go slow. You have to spend a lot. You have to privilege recovery. I always say that, you know, grit, uh, flow requires a lot of grit, or these states require a lot of grit, and one of the, one of the, levels of grit that is really important is the grit to recover which high performers suck at as a general <laughs> high performers do not myself included like to recover if i want to go from one thing to the next the next you know we see it a lot uh really you see it a lot in, in, in companies sales is particularly brutal on this because what will happen is somebody will you know have a really great month. A lot of flow states. They'll blow it out of the water. They'll sell a ton of shit. They'll break all their quotas. And the month will end and the boss will say, that was fantastic. That was awesome. Now do it again in two weeks and we're going to shrink your territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It happens all the time. It happens, you know, companies. People get through like an amazing project together, do a kick-ass job. Boss says, that was amazing. That was kick-ass. Great job. Now I need you to do this project right now. There's, there's no time for recovery, and usually because the next thing is more difficult, there's greater challenge, and the combination is deadly.
2: Mm. Steven, do you ever find, is it, is it possible to induce flow through routine? And I ask that from my competitive golf days. The only coach I had was primarily a psychological coach, and there was very little work on the physical, golf swing, et cetera, and it was all focused on the mental, whether that was on the range or course practice. And it was all about the process and setting up the process so that you could shut it off and routine would take over. The golf swing didn't matter; nothing mattered. The state of your mind is all that mattered. And so, I have you had any experience with ha- being able to induce flow through these setup processes or routines?
1: Yeah, it's a it's it's a great uh, it's a great question. And yes, um, there's there's been a lot of that. I you certainly – it's important. One of the things that we talk about a lot is you're protecting the first 90 minutes of your day, for example, which is a very high-flow time, and you want to use it for your, your hardest task, whatever whatever you need most. And, and you know, it sort of goes from there. But, yeah, I think, I think you want to make it as much of your life as, 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 as is possible – steady and even and familiar and i know what i'm going to do i know what i'm going to do next um so you can don't have to worry about you can take that stuff out of the picture it's really useful by the way you're not doing anything different in that question than what google is doing when they provide people with free dry cleaning and rides to work and rides home on the weekends into the rock concert and every and food and you know everything else they're doing the same thing, right? They're to maximize flow. Every time the self has to come into the picture and do some thinking, right? You're knocking yourself farther from this state. So anything you can do to keep that portion of the brain shut down, very useful.
0: That's good to know. And I know you guys kind of have cornered the market as far as you know flow goes and flow research and everything. So there might not be an answer to this question. But what's some of the worst advice that you hear being you know spewed out there about flow states or maybe there's just misconceptions
1: that's a funny question <laughs> um, yeah um, well I you know I do think uh, oftentimes there are a lot of people who do think flow can be achieved two four seven and Right, There are different, and there's there's interesting enlightenment research going on. We talk about it a little bit in Stealing Fire. and It's really, you know, it's, again, hard, enlightenment seems to be this permanent state, um, but the more we look at it, the more it seems like what you've managed to do is retain the perspective you have in a non-ordinary state during normal life, not the sensation. So um, that seems slightly possible, but I'll, I, you hear a lot of people talk about you can live and flow. And it's that, like, that is, A, it's ridiculous. B, it, you wouldn't want to do it. Um, but, you know, I always say with these states, like, the value, these are information-rich states, but want, to get information, you need contrast, right? right. You, you you don't want, if everything's the same, you're not going to notice it. So you want the contrast in the state, out of the state. So I hear a lot of oftentimes people trying to live and flow, and it just, it it creates, you um, A, it's not possible, and B, it's a ridiculous expectation. C, you wouldn't want to to be there. Um, So I think that is consistently. But we see the other thing that um, has gone on with all these kind of non-ordinary states. These are um, high-energy states. There are consequences for playing with them and even flow. And I see a lot of people kind of not taking the risk side of this. Right? Big ups, huge boosts, creativity, learning, motivation, heal anxiety, heal trauma, magic wonder pill, fantastic. There are downsides, there are dark sides. These states are very sticky, right? They can be addictive. They can cause you to think and think these things go wrong. In fact, stealing fire. We you know, at the end of the book, we lay down four case studies for how these things go wrong consistently throughout history, over and over and over again. Um and, you know, it, people are still going to make those same mistakes. They're still going to go down those rabbit holes. Um, so n- not thinking these things can be dangerous, you know, so not treating them with a lot of respect. Um, nobody would take or very few people take drugs, psychedelics, for example, without a little bit that you, you treat that stuff with respect. You should have the same respect for meditation, for flow, for like they come with cautions and you have to be an adult about this stuff, especially if you want to sustain it over time. Um, and the idea that this can be permanent, that, that to me is the, yeah, that to me is a, is the big error.
2: Right. And you kind of bring up there all, almost the nootropic category, which is becoming even more widespread and continued growth and um, kind of fits in line with, I guess, our society of always reaching for that pill that's going to get me to this state Um, when simple box breathing or binaural beats or anything like that, uh, might do the job. Are there any other technology options that people that that are readily accessible that people can tap into like, like a binaural
1: beats or something like that? You know, we've done some work, uh, focus at will and brain FM. Both are, uh, both are music, right. Both are using, are using sound to drive flow. Um, uh, both are getting amazing, amazing, amazing results. So those are neat techs, and we're seeing this develop more. I really personally, um, heart rate variability seems to be, you know, it's not It's not a single data point. There's a lot of people make a mistake with heart rate variability and, and conflate it with flow or conflate it with these states. It's not, but it's a very good tool. I love neural feedback, and there are so many prosumer, the Muse headset I really like, um, but there are so many prosumer devices out there right now and the real the important point is you want to mix and match you want to use a lot of stuff that's available to you you want to run the experiment for yourself um, and figure out what really works for you personally you know a lot of a lot of people in the flow genome project love the technology they're really for it and they get great results with neural feedback and brainwave entrainment and all this sort of stuff i don't like any of it it's not – personally, I just – I'm a low-tech guy. I like to be able to do something like with just me and not, and nothing else. Um, so that's how I approach it because I want to be able to do it under any circumstances wherever I am, whenever I am, you know, for no apparent good reason other than that's how I'm wired, right? Like – but everybody's different and I and you should you know really run different experiments I, I think the mis- and the mistake is um, I have to get there right here right now today this is this is a long practice you know I do a lot of a lot of speaking corporations always want to know what are the three things we can do Monday morning <laughs> right and, you know absolutely I can give you three things to do Monday morning but you're also going to have to do them Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. Right. <laughs> I mean like for sure, that's what matters. What matters is, you know, we um, we teach people to do a power hour of work at FGP one hour a day committed to sort some of these practices to the, you know, a limited set of these practices. But if you do it every day, you start to get results, but you want to keep doing it. Like, you don't. I mean, you, it doesn't, it, does, it just doesn't make sense to stop. You know what I mean? Like, and it's, you see a lot of, that's the other, you asked me about bad advice. Um, there's a lot of people who want us to get there now really fast. Okay, go right ahead. It's it, totally fine. I understand your impatience. I am, I am deeply impatient myself and I absolutely sympathize. But if you go slow to go fast, you will go much farther, faster.
2: It reminds me a lot of one of the first meditations books I read, which was 10% happier by Dan Harris. And it's just that like constant practice, you know, it's a great book recommend to anybody out there interested in learning about mindfulness. But I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that the heart rate variability, and that's something that's a tool we've used for years. And in fact, we had Jason Moore, the creator of elite HRV on the podcast a while back. Um, but I'm not very familiar on inducing flow states with HRV. Could you highlight a little bit some of those techniques or what they're actually doing?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, by the way, I do not think it completely induces flow states. There are uh, different organizations who do, who think that if you, you know, you can use that. What I think is that learning to calm yourself down very, very quickly is very, very useful. And I think if you use heart rate variability, which can calm you down, lower anxiety, right? You, you, there's a sweet spot for, for flow where anxiety, the quieter your anxiety is, the easier it's gonna to be to get to that sweet spot most of the time, provided you're paying some attention. So I think heart rate variability combined with neural feedback, really potent. And that's, when I'm seeing it tend to produce flow states, we're really using it that way, it's that combination. I don't think you can get there with one. I think it's a potent technology with a meditation, with a breathing practice. You know, just deploy any again, anything you can do to train the brain to focus and calm down is going to train up these skill sets.
2: So it's almost using that part of the app um, just to use HR, the elite HRV, for example, with the breathing technique part um, where you're breathing and you're following a circle that's changing colors as your breath is, is, you know, inhaling, exhaling.
0: Now, how about on the nutrition side of things? I know Josh and I in our business is in the performance nutrition space and a lot of our listeners have heard us talk about this, etc. Are there any nutritional schemes, you know, diets that are favorable to a, you know, flow-filled life? Or on the flip side, ones that are extremely detrimental?
1: It's a good question. I think answer one is we don't really know. And the main reason we don't know is because it is seems to be different in everyone. Flow sure. is a high energy state. So... You definitely need to be fueled. It needs to be good fuel as a general rule. Fruits, vegetables, fish, you know, the the smart things to eat. Um, That seems to really matter. Um, Individually, it's hard to tell. I will tell you a funny story, though. Personally, I spent a decade tracking flow while skiing and recording what I ate that day, how deep of a flow state I got into, that sort of thing. And I did it over a decade just to see if there was anything in the data just at a self level. Could I learn anything? And after a decade, what I noticed is that on the days that I couldn't didn't have time to make breakfast and stopped at a gas station and ate crap trucker food of powdered donuts and coffee. That's when I got the most flow. Well. So and that and I and I and I really think it <laughs> has to do with like being really skinny and burning a lot of energy quickly and just packing in, you know, bad sugar and fat. Um was what i was responding to so now i you know now it's 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 still it's just a lot of fat and sugar before i go just better sources (laughs) what i've been aiming for but i i think you gotta everybody has to run the experiment i you know we all at this point most of us we know how to eat right we've learned we've sort of learned how to eat um and we've learned a lot of what's bad for us and from there i think you just have to run the experiment and you know keep track of your data good to know
0: how about um i mean i know we're kind of getting close to uh, the timer here but how how did you get onto this i mean you said you spent 10 years studying flow on yourself and skiing where did where did all that come from where did how did you first get on this subject
1: um a couple of different places but like the earliest was i uh when i started out years ago uh, in the early 90s i was primarily a journalist and action sports were brand new then. So if you could ride and ski or ride and surf, ride and rock climb, whatever, there was work. And couldn't do any of those things super well, but I liked my editors because I needed the work. And uh, I got to spend you know the better portion of five, six years chasing professional athletes around mountains. And one of the things that happens is if you're not a professional athlete, you chase professional athletes around mountains, you break a lot of bones. I broke a massive amount of bones. And that would mean I took a lot of time off. Right, I'd be hanging out snap this or that and have to take four or five months off. And when I came back, I would notice that progress had w- was incredible. It didn't make any sense. Like Stuff that had been impossible before, three months ago, not ever going to get done, was not only being done, it was being iterated upon. And it just kept happening over and over and over, over a period that I kept going, well, what is driving this? This is really strange. Over a period of time, I eventually figured out what this was and, you know, started researching it more formally. But that's really where it started for me because I started to see what it was producing, you know, a level of, a level of progress that didn't make any sense, especially as a, you know, as a science geek, it's like, you know, these guys are defying all the numbers and you're talking about a group of people, you know, especially export athletes in the 1990s, there's a punk rock crowd. They don't have a ton of education. Nobody's got a lot of money, right? and nobody is following any high-performance blueprint. They're living radically wild lives. So they'd be the last group of people you would suspect in the world of massive amounts of very quick improvement. So where was it coming from was a very valid and puzzling question.
0: (laughs) Good to know. Well, I, I was reading, I think it was an outside magazine um, somebody went through your, your fundamentals class there on the, the Flow Genome Project, and he was describing an assignment that you guys gave where, <laughs> you know, you had him down two shots of espresso, then two shots of vodka, and then watch this really immersive video that he had to turn all the way up, full screen, full blast, just super immersive. And I just wanted to know if maybe you could give... You
1: forgot, you forgot the chocolate. The I chocolate? Oh, I, I
0: didn't I didn't it remember the like, chocolate.
1: Outside of eating a lot of chocolate, a lot of chocolate. Yeah. yeah. So, one of the things that's that's important about this work is you need uh, what what my partner Jamie Wheel likes to call cognitive literacy. It's really important, right? When working with non ordinary states of consciousness flow or otherwise, to understand what these states feel like, and um, you need like we had to, you know, we had to get people legally into some kind of an altered state of consciousness just so they can start experiencing different states. Right. One of the things that that happens very frequently flow or otherwise is the first handful of times people get into these states, they're so powerful, right? There's no reference. They don't use them for high performance. They just, they're, they're starstruck. You're just like looking around going, Oh my God, it's so neat. Pretty all the trees, right? That's fine. But you want to learn to be familiar. You want to, that wants to become a place that you live and can move around and can utilize. And that that takes some some awareness. So that was just, that's an early exercise <laughs> just to say, hey, here's here's a profound state change. And people have you know had alcohol before, they've had chocolate and espresso before. They may not have had all these things together, so it's a slightly different version. And that that was the point of that. It was also a point of you know, teaching people that was a risk exercise as well. One, you know, when we, when we do the flow genome project, we do that. This is from flow fundamentals. We like to give people choices. You know, we're going to teach you how to use risk as a trigger. We're going to give you small, medium, large, right? (laughs) Whatever level you're comfortable going at, you go. Um, and and I, that so that was woven in there as, as, as one option. But I saw it uh, show up in the outside article. I kind of cringed, right? Like you had, you had to mention that, right? Yeah. Like yeah. You're really going to seem like fruitcake. <laughs> There's no context, right? There's no, nothing just like we made you do this. And, but, um, it does seem to be useful to people, right? Sure. To, um, you can, we can, you know, you can come to one of our events. Usually one of the things we do on the first day is take people through an hour long breathing protocol that starts, you know, with with box breathing goes all the way up. You know, through consciousness altering breathing into kind of sometimes nitric oxide breathing, where we're giving people essentially gas inside a whip. It's so laughing gas. What and using freehold breath driving practices at the same time. Um, the interesting thing is, you can using breath of fire. If you do breath of fire for about 15, 20 minutes, you will produce a sensation in your brain that is exactly the same as what a whip it does. You'll get a nitric oxide release. So what's really interesting to me with this exercise is they do this themselves, right? They're like, oh, wow, look what I did to my brain. And then 10 minutes later, they use a chemical and do the exact same thing. Wow. So that's, that's a level of cognitive literacy, some fluency in how, you know, how your brain works and how it feels. That is useful.
2: Well, Stephen, I know we'd really appreciate if you wouldn't mind passing along maybe a challenge to our listeners or some, some resource kind of to get them down this path of reaching a flow state.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll just call it a medium, uh, medium risk, big <laughs> big risk for this guy. But
1: well, you know, um, stealingfirebook.com, dot information wise, great great place to start there. Um, and I don't know if I the challenge to your listeners is um, learn you know learn more about how your brain works under the hood um, and how it makes you feel. Right. Like that's that's really the a lot of the ball game is learning how to map states of consciousness and their feelings onto kind of what trigger that in me. Where did this come from? How can I get more or less of it? And that comes just through paying attention and trying to link those things together. That's awesome. great. We Good appreciate
2: enough. it. Before we let you go, we got to ask, how is the Chihuahua Ranch coming along? How is everything? How are you doing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the whole team's it's, still there. Yeah, yeah, everybody the Chihuahua, Ranchy Chihuahua is, is is really thank you. It's nice you to ask. Um it's great. Uh it's our uh I think we're closing in on our ten our year anniversary this year. Um, wow. I think we've helped. Congratulations. Uh, Seven hundred dogs here, a couple five thousand through our outreach program. So made a little bit of a dent, long, long way to go.
0: That's great. Well, and in, in closing I know the book is out. Anything you want to want our listeners to know on that front?
1: It's out. Buy 400 copies <laughs> each. Really? Give them to everybody you know. Give them to people you don't even like. Um, <laughs> I would say cuz you'll like them better after they read the book.
2: You can get it on Amazon, you can get it on the website and Barton Barnes & Noble, Barnes and Noble. Noble. Any, any independent bookstore, any bookstore at this point it's everywhere yeah we'll put all the details in the show notes and steven it's been
1: a pleasure thanks guys hey thank you so much for what you do this was really fun